Let's go and do a quiz on what we've been talking about. Let's do a, an IQ test, see what you remember. In fact, in your notes, what we're going to be starting is at the end of the chapter, page 119, and just answer some of the things we've already talked about. In the questions that we've been talking about church, we're going we're to ask a couple of those and just see what you do for review. Your first question in that review section asks, basically says, what's the difference between that idea of a universal and local church? Any answers? You can contribute on this one and speak up, please. Difference between local church and universal church. If you just don't give me any answer, it means, it means I didn't do a good job or you weren't listening, one of the two, okay? Is there any difference between the two? Go ahead, Jim, just speak up. Okay. Great. You were going to add something? One of you back there, Bob, was that you? Okay. Okay, good. Good answers. Anybody else want to contribute something? Okay. So I just put down some, like you did, Jim, that what the universal church is all believers of all time from the rapture. As he said, it's invisible. It's never yet met. The local church is a visible entity, as they mentioned, made up of born-again people here, and we're in a local area, and we're able to meet and do God's work together. Just a very simple explanation that you're going to make sure that that person, that you're doing the Bible study, they answer it better than what you did. Okay, <laughs> that they understand that, otherwise you're going to back up and review. Another review thought. Um, do you remember we mentioned this here about two, three weeks ago, if you followed any of the series that we've been doing along this, that Jesus frequently used parable, uh, picture parable stories. He used images. He used the things like this, salvation. He talked about being born again. Okay, that, and he, he used that picture to explain that it was basically somebody else's laboring, somebody else's work for you, you and me. He talks about him being the good shepherd, made the comparison that he would give his life for the sheep and he would protect compared to the hireling. He talked about false teachers being like wolves in sheep clothing. He talked about us having different hearts to the like different soils and response. He talked about us being salt and light. And you take some of those qualities and say, okay, what does salt do? What does light do? And that was to describe some of the influence we're supposed to have. He talked about his return, becoming as a thief in the night. Not too long ago, somebody said, I read a chapter. They contacted, they said, I have a question. I read the chapter. It says that Jesus comes like a thief in the night. Is Jesus a criminal? No, he was just using an analogy, a picture, to give an idea that he's coming unannounced, unexpected, as you know, any of you have had that experience where somebody all of a sudden is trying to rob you. They don't call you ahead of time. And so he uses pictures. When it comes to the idea of the church, what pictures did he use to help us understand what the church is like? The body. Any others? The bride. Any others? The family, okay, any others? What's that? Okay, the, we didn't discuss that, but that is a, one of those ideas, yes. Any others that we've discussed in our study? Do you remember? Oh, am I discouraged? Uh, here we go. The body was one. The family was one. We talked about the flock. We talked about we're being a building. We talked about the bride of Christ. We talked about Christ's army. We talked about Christ's field. We talked about being the pillar and ground of truth. We talked about being called a nation. We talked about the, all of those things together. And you remember them all, so say yes. Okay. Acts chapter 2, another review question. Acts 2, it talks about they continued steadfastly in the apostles, and then it lists four areas that are very major activities of the local church. Do you remember what they were? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. 
Okay, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Okay, which in our study that you followed along with, we talked about those different aspects that that is supposed to be a lot of what we do as a local church when we get together. Then there was the question in your notes that says, when did the local church appear? I, I rephrase that. Okay, what, there's two kinds of church. Which one of them, local or universal, which one gets the most press in the New Testament? The local, the local, by far, okay? And how do we know that? How do we know that the majority of, of passages that say church, ecclesia, how do we know that they're talking about local? Well, contextual uh, passages make it very clear when it says the church in Sancria, the church in Antioch, the church in Corinth, that's local. It's very clear by some of the titles. And so we made these observations in our study that the New Testament gives much more attention to local idea of church than universal 95 percent of the time. It's local. And uh, we gave all different types of comments, but we added this as well, that the book of Acts is all about founding and, and going out doing missions work to do churches, local churches in that first generation. Much of the New Testament books, they were written to a local church, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Corinthians, the book of Revelation, the seven of them. And we made this comment that several of the New Testament books are written to leaders in the church, as you see pictured here. And uh, the topics within those books, they talked about pastors, deacons, that's local church, collecting finance to help out the widows in your community, local church. The idea of uh, doing communion together, a local church. That idea of who's supposed to be qualified to teach. The, when it comes to who's teaching the ladies, who's teaching the men, that's local church. So the emphasis throughout is very clear that it's local church. I want to expand upon that a little bit, and we're now on page 110. 110 in your notes, we're picking up where we left off and just continuing and finishing up. It says the local church is still God's, and this is highlighted in your workbook. It's still God, central to God's plan for work in this age. How do we know that? Because he's building the church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We also know this, that there is never a mention of in the New Testament of some other institution, some other um, entity that Jesus is building to replace the local church. It is still the focus of his attention, according to Matthew 16. And at the end of the New Testament, when we get to the book of Revelation, who does he send that message to? Is sending it to the seven local churches. And so local church seems to be the predominant. Now, I want to pause on this for a moment. If you're doing the Bible study with somebody, you may want to, may want to highlight this. As you're teaching them, as you're learning this yourself, that this is a fact that there are many, many good ministries out there. There are many good efforts being made. Hospitals, orphanages, Christian camps, Christian schools, having concerts. So there's, there's nothing wrong with any of them. But... Are they the primary focus of what Jesus says he is building? No, they're not. They're what we say, uh, we use the term parachurch. They come beside, they, they, they can be helpful tools, but they don't replace the local church. And that's a shame because in our generation, so, many, so much activity and emphasis gets put upon additional ministries that it seems to me that some of those helpful, good things, they rob talent, they rob skill, they rob contribution from the local church. And I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying they're evil. But people come to a point that they say this, and I want to pick on one of them for, just, for instance. Christian schools. 
um, I heard this frequently, that people would say, God gave me a ministry to be a teacher in a Christian school. That's great. That's wonderful. Yeah, God gave you that ministry just like he gives somebody a ministry to be a lawyer, to be a salesperson or whatever. God puts you there because that's where you can minister. But to the point that I've had conversations with some who say, well, because I'm a teacher in a Christian school, I don't need to contribute to my local church because that's my ministry and that alone. That's not biblically correct. Biblically correct idea is my local church is where I'm to be contributing. Can I teach in a school and contribute and impact lives? Yes, but not to the neglect that I shouldn't be involved in a church. That's a parachurch ministry, and it's a good thing, but it's like any other job we have. Use your job to minister to people, but don't forsake the assembly of the local church. And so there's a concern that's mentioned in your Bible study. You want to help from early on. Help the new convert. Help the young believer to understand the importance of being involved in their local church because it's the body. It's that family. It's that, it's that pillar and ground of truth that is so essential. None of these replace the local church. They never were intended to replace the local church. That wasn't Christ's point of view. Now then we go back and in your notes they're going to ask on the next page. They're going to say, okay, thinking about Jesus. Jesus Christ building and Jesus Christ expanding his church. One of the things that we're supposed to be doing is go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things. Lo, I'm with you always. What command, and this is somewhat reviewish, what command did he give the believers to do in this passage? Do you remember what it is? Yeah, really, there is a singular command, and it is to teach all nations. It's to make disciples, literally. But the idea in this text is it can't happen unless we're going out. It can't happen unless we're reaching out. And so it includes instructing, making disciples, means I've got to teach somebody about baptism, got to encourage that. We've got to assist them in all things that Jesus has taught, all of his commands. By the way, for you to teach somebody the commands of Jesus Christ, what does that assume? What's that? You've got to know them yourself. So you've got to be familiar with the scriptures. And so this is the idea of helping disciples learn how to disciple somebody else. To just propagate this idea. So we have that Matthew 28 command that's talking about. And then the question in your notebook says, how does the local church help fulfill the Great Commission? Well, let's think about that for a second. How can our church help you do the job of making disciples? By teaching you how to do it. Anything else? Let's go back to what you just said. Helping to teach the commands so you know what to do to teach somebody else. And if any other way we can help one another make disciples. Materials, tracks. What's that? Okay. Does discipleship happen? Can we influence people and help them to grow in Christ by the example we provide? Oh, yeah. What else can we do for one another in doing discipling? Prayer. Okay, encouragement. So I just put down a whole variety of thoughts that you may want to write in here. Um, it's a place where mature disciples can, can uh, be found. Okay, a baby Christian needs to have some type of training, needs to be discipled further. Well, then the local church, that's where mature Christians are who can do the discipling. So you go there. It's a place where we can find somebody to help us to do it. We could join together, two or three of us in a group, and help disciple this one individual. And it can work together. It's a place where the baptism, the instruction, 
instruction takes place that can help. It's the place that guarantees sound doctrine is being taught so that it's correct and they're being exposed to the truth. It's a place where prayer support can come. It's where we can get mutual encouragement as we're trying to disciple people and we ran into a brick wall and then all of a sudden we can encourage each other. Don't give up. I was talking to somebody and I was discipling them and we hit a brick wall and this is what happened. That encouragement. It's the idea of materials as you already mentioned and the idea can we can provide instruction here in a local church to help you to know how to disciple. Hence, the foundation study, the discipleship. And that just leads us right back to that whole idea. So when we come to a local church, you're teaching and you're talking to somebody, you're training them, you're in a Bible study. And there's a section here that is very interesting. I don't want to belabor it, but I want to mention it because it's there in your notes. And that whole idea, and they have a paragraph that talks about, and just to summarize it, the paragraph is basically saying that believers are supposed to be in a submissive attitude towards their church. And he's going to expand an application. It's going to be about leadership. Primarily, I think there's the a bigger concept to it. But he's going to say, and he's got a good point as he put it together. Unfortunately, we live in a society where you use the word submission and, it, and people's response is, I'm not going to submit to anybody. You know, submit to a local church. Are you nuts? I'm an American. I have rights. I can do whatever I want. By the way, is that true? No, it never works. Can you do what you want in your family? No, you have to submit to one another. Can you do it at your job? Probably not. Okay. You can't do it the way you drive. Well, maybe you do. Okay. But you're not supposed to. When you go shopping, are there certain rules that you're supposed to follow when it comes to shopping? Yeah, you're not supposed to walk out the store without paying. Okay, it's a simple rule. But some people, and we see it in our culture more and more, do we not? That there is a people that just, they revolt against any authority. And so he points that out. But then there's the flip side. There's the other element, even in with Christianity, that some are cult-like. They will believe whatever the teacher says. That's just as dangerous, isn't it? Okay? That they submit to the point that, well, you know, preacher so-and-so said this, and he said that I'm supposed to give him my checkbook so he can write out checks to our church. Okay? And there's people who do that. Okay, that gullibility is just as dangerous. So both extremes are dangerous. You want to be training and teaching that person that, yes, we need to have a submissive spirit, but we don't give up our brains. We don't give up our personal priesthood and individuality by saying, okay, I'm going to come in and join the assembly. We come as an individual to contribute to the group. We work together. We have harmony as long as that group is following the... Bible as its sole authority of faith and practice. And so that's the proper balance. You Again, you're going to explain that to that individual or that Sunday school class or whoever you're talking to. Make sure you talk about this balance and explaining. Okay, there's a whole section that, that is there, but I'm going to add a few notes to it. Why should I submit to a local church or to the leadership in following what they're saying to, as long as they're following the Word of God? Why should I do that? Uh, here's my response. Okay, it's not in your notes, but this is what I would say. It's reasonable. It's logical. It's as logical for you and me to follow the body as it is for the hand to submit to the rest of the body and not to revolt. And the hand to say, I'm going to do my own thing. That's it. My eye is going on strike. Okay, that doesn't happen in our body. And what was the one analogy that is most frequently used for the church in the New Testament? The body. 
And so it's just as reasonable this way. It's reasonable for the wife to submit. It's reasonable for the sheep to submit to the shepherd. It's reasonable for a soldier to submit to those who are in authority. It's reasonable for those in a nation that the citizens submit to the leadership. If there is no submission, if there is no following the leadership, what do we have? Anarchy. Okay, that's what what we have. When there's no acceptance of the group's authority, there's pure anarchy. The same thing is true in the spiritual realm. Hence, local church, there has to be some form of leadership. There has to be some form of giving direction. It's the way that God had set it up. In the Trinity, there's equality, and yet is there headship in the Trinity? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus Christ submits unto who? The Father, okay? And so the, he doesn't give up his deity, but then he uses that as the example in that First Corinthians 11 passage, as Christ submits to the Father, so in the home let the wife submit to the husband. And it doesn't mean that she is less of an individual, but there is the organization. It's in the Trinity, it's in creation, it's to be in the local church as well. And so the church is, and there's a whole section here that is just more for your thinking, that the church is one of three social institutions that God God started. If you've never thought this through, this is a good time to do it. God established in all, for all of history three major institutions. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and what's the very first institution, social unit that he created? Family. Family. What's the next one he created? Genesis 9, verse 6. The next one. Government. And then there's the third, he, he created nation and all of the, uh, that, that idea with Israel. But in the New Testament, then the third institution that continues to this day is church. So uh, let's just talk about that. You're explaining it because the person you're doing the Bible study, they may not even understand all the way back to Genesis. And so you take them to Genesis 2. And in Genesis 2, it's that passage that says that, you know, it was not good for man to be alone. So God created Eve. And he said in the Hebrew, wow, all right, this is the bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And God says, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall keep on becoming one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. It's repeated in the book of Ephesians. It's repeated in the gospel of Matthew. So it's, it's not just for that Old Testament era. It's a transdispensational. It's for all time. And so an institution of family where the married couples were allowed to form their own family unit. Now, that's you. You're there. Some of you are there. You're your family unit. Let's ask this now. In your home, Let's, let's insert some additional members to your family unit called children. Okay, some of you are going animals. No, no, children. Okay, children. You add them to it. Now, based on Ephesians 6, how are children to respond to those who are placed in authority in this institution of God? Children. Yes, yeah, see, it's one of the first verses we get them to memorize. Children, obey your parents, okay, because you'll live long, okay. Um, and so that whole idea is there to honor and to obey the parents. That's an institution that God established with an order of authority and leadership. And so we could say, okay, they're to follow that institution's designated authority, which is the parents in that case. And what happens when the kids refuse to follow the parents' authority? Anarchy. Oh, let me rephrase that. Have you seen families where the kids are in charge? What's that house like? Chaos. Okay, that's a good word for it. There's a second institution I referred to. It's in Genesis chapter 9. 
And here's, here's the way he laid it out. If any man sheds innocent blood, then his blood shall be... Okay, it's the idea of capital punishment. Who made the determination? The group, the society, the community. So he's giving authority to community in the sense that we would call government, that they are supposed to impose rules and regulations, and those who disobey, what are you supposed to do? Reward them by letting them continue to disobey and take and destroy property and lives? No. The authorities are supposed to come in. And we read in the book of Romans, Romans 13. You want to turn there for a second? Romans 13. There's two verses in this text that talk about how... There's uh, there's seven verses that talk about what happens. In Romans 13, as you page there and start looking at verses 1 through 7, it's going to say, okay, what is the job of the government? The job of the government, and he's going to say, okay, the job of the government is to be able to punish evildoers and protect the innocent, those who are good workers. And the government, therefore, in order to do that job, they have the right to collect from what? From us. What do they collect? Taxes, things like that. What is to be our response? Okay, what he tells us to do in Romans 13, verse 1, we are to... Submit. Okay, we're to submit to the authorities who are over us in that government situation. And the verses also not only talk about the idea of submitting to the laws, and by the way, is there a limit to submission? Yes, we ought to obey God rather than men. So when government tells us to do something that contradicts a command of God, then we are given the green light to not obey. But in this case, he's talking about, okay, if the government's not doing that, we give them our obedience, we give them our respect, we give them the taxes that they are asking from us. The, uh, you know, what if the government said, you pay whatever you want? Okay, okay, the presidential candidate says, you can pay whatever you want to pay. Is he getting elected? Yeah, I, I probably would get elected in this day and age. But what would that mean? financial anarchy, okay? It would be a horrible situation. But there's an institution that God put his hand of approval on that men could operate, just like family, and he set up a system of obedience. He did the same thing in local church. In Hebrews chapter 13, in this passage you want to turn to, there's a couple of verses because we're going to ask you to fill in the blanks on a couple of specifics. In Hebrews 13, we jump down to verse 7. And he gives a command in this. And then you look down at verse 17. So you're in Hebrews 13. Look at verse 7. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 17. Okay, you got those? You're looking at them. You're having them in the Bible study. Open them up. And you're having them read those those verses. And then you're going to turn back to your notes. And you're going to say, okay, according to these verses, how are we to relate to the local church? The leadership in the local church. What are we supposed to do? What are the commands in there? Is, there? is there a submit in there? Okay. Verse 17 has submit. What other command does it give? Obey. Okay, what other one did you say it has? Somebody said another one. Okay, remember. What does that mean? Remember them that have the rule over you, that have spoken the word unto you. Yeah, I remember that. I remember everything he said. Okay, is that the remember? Does anybody have a different, different translation of that verse, that word? Hebrews 13, verse 7. 
The word remember has the idea to hold in esteem. It's the idea of re- remembering somebody with fondness or respect. Okay, um, And so the idea, the, clear, the verses are clearly referring to relationship in the sense that, this is so awkward to talk about, um, my relationship to you because of the position here and as one of the church leaders here. Okay, this is our relationship and we want to make sure we're teaching Bible. That it says, remember, keep in a positive frame of mind, appreciate, respect. As, and by the way, there is, that, there is a condition in this verse that they have spoken the word of God unto you. Not just by a position, but they have done performance of the work. That is assumed in verse 7 where he's talking about who have spoken the word unto you, whose faith follow. I think somebody mentioned follow. Well, what's the assumption of following somebody? They're, they're leading in what way? Okay, if you're going to follow their, exa- their, their example, okay, then you've got to say, okay, you're considering their conversation. What example do they give? And the assumption is they're giving you what type of an example? A good one, a good one. Okay, so you, you got that down. Follow the example whose faith follow. Follow their leadership, obey, submit. Um, it doesn't mean you can ever question, but the idea of accusing, the idea of uh, anarchy or revolting, that, that is not to be in the local church frame of mind if things are operating properly. And so we have that idea that it's to be done voluntarily. You submit yourself. You do this voluntarily. You assume this and you do it on a repeated basis. That's what this passage is teaching. And that's what I appreciate. The man who did a Bible study with me when I was 17, just got saved, is one of the Bible studies is related this way to the church leadership Um, because for me I didn't have respect for clergy because for me because of all that we saw in the church we used to go to all the corruption the immorality we didn't think clergy deserved any respect it's kind of like the way we feel right now we don't think any politician deserves respect okay but is there to be a respectful attitude to those in authority yeah, we're, we're supposed to make sure we temper that. And so this idea was very important for me to learn that, yeah, go and go with an open mind. Be teachable to those who are teaching the Word of God. And don't just try to question everything that is happening. And so it was a very important principle for me. God ordains spiritual leadership. Now, in your notes, there's a whole section. They give you a lot of these verses that they talk about, and they give you, they just give you a reference. But the idea, and you may want to do it this way. If you're doing the Bible study, you may say, okay, what does this verse talk about, and what does it tell us to do in relationship to those who are in spiritual leadership that we're supposed to follow? What, what's supposed to be characteristic of that person that we're supposed to follow. Or or phrase it this way. Those in spiritual leadership should be what? They should be servants. Okay, this whole passage is, whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And so this whole passage talks about people who are willing to serve. People who have that attitude that they're going to work for the sake of others. Here's another one. I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man but to be in science. This is in a local church setting. If any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work and he must be and it goes on the husband of one wife. Looking at that, those in spiritual leadership in a local church, what is the qualification there? It's gender-related. It's supposed to be the men. The men are supposed to provide the leadership. They're to step up to the plate. Does it mean the ladies can't lead within ladies' ministries? No, that's encouraging, Titus 2. But this idea that when it comes to local church ministry, 
we're supposed to have the men are to be the shepherds. Okay, they're to be the, providing the leadership in the body. His qualification in this verse. If a man desires the office of bishop, he desires a good work, he must be blameless, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, not given to wine, not a striker, not greedy. And he lists all those different traits. A spiritual leader should be a person of integrity, good character, whatever you want to put down, qualified, good reputation, mature, skilled, apt to teach, Able to be able to give out the word of God. Trained enough that he can teach the word of God. Leaders in their own home. If they don't know how to control and lead or direct their own home. How should they lead or direct in the local church? All these qualifications are given for a reason. That he says, okay, spiritual leaders that we're following. We want to make sure that they are of character. Spiritual character in the home and in public. Here's one for you. Let no man despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, the way you live, in charity, spirit, faith, purity. Neither as being lords over the heritage, but being an example. What would you put down here? Spiritual, those in spiritual leadership in the church should be... Is it dependent upon their age? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But they have to be mature. Okay. So, what would you look at? Should they demand you follow them? No, not being, not being lords over the flock. So, you follow them for what reason? Yeah, yeah, you look at it and you go, yeah, there's no age requirement restriction. But they have to be providing a good example. In other words, we are not only respecting the office when we talk about pastor, but in this case, I mean, we respect the office of, you know, whatever political position. But when it comes to those in spiritual leadership in the church, not only should we respect the office, we should be able to respect that person, right? That person who's in that, they shouldn't demand Okay, you've got to respect me. They should earn it by doing what? Giving a good example? Not lording it over you? And so you're teaching this to a young believer because they're going to choose a church. You're going to say, come to our church. But if they go somewhere, they need to know what to look for. And so this is very, these are very important ideas. Spiritual leaders should be, look out among you, seven men of wise report. These are the apostles who are leading the church. They're looking and saying, let's get deacons. Why do they want the deacons? What are they learning to do? Delegate. They're learning to work with others, to delegate, to share ministry. And then he says, let the leaders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. There are people who keep their priorities. They are providing leadership. They're working hard. They know to teach what is right and what is wrong. And so they're providing that. And that goes right along with this one. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word. And Because you don't muzzle the oxen who's working to crunch the grain. You let him eat some of what he's crunching. In other words, those in spirit leadership should be, and you guys do this well. What are you supposed to do towards those in leadership? Okay, especially the pastors. You're supposed to take care of us. Okay, in the financial sense. And we wind down, we beseech you to know them that labor among you, who are over you in the Lord, admonish to esteem them very highly. I look and say they're supposed to be respected, but again, they've earned it. So you have all these different qualifications that they don't want to be many masters. They watch for your souls. They're careful. They're conscientious because they know they're going to give an account to God. 
And so this is the right type of leadership that you're supposed to be following. Now here, let's bring it to this spot. There are, there are competitions taking place between the institutions of God. Okay, It's happening in our day, much more. There's the one institution and the other that they are competing in some people's minds. They weren't supposed to. But we have some elements that people say, listen, 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 it's got to be the church. I will labor and I'll work in the church to the neglect of my family. You read some of the stories of some of the evangelists of different generations who did a great job preaching the word of God, but a lot of them lost their own kids because they were so working for the Lord, they never had time for their family. The other swing of the pendulum is to do what? I'm going to focus on my family to the neglect of church. To the neglect that it says, wait a minute, I, I don't have time to do church. I, I, you know, we need a date night so we can't go to church. Did God design church and family to conflict and to compete? I don't think so. I don't think so. It shouldn't be this way. Why is that? Because both are part of God's program today. Could there be tensions at time? Yes. And by the way, if there is no tension, then what does it mean? You're not moving anyway. You know, there's always a tension. There, and we're always trying to keep where? Right in the middle. Keep balance. Exactly. And so that's okay. But the, uh, what we have to keep in mind is these are both legitimate programs. Institutions that God has designed for whose benefit? Ours. Okay. Yeah, he has said, I will help you, but you've got to have family doing right. You've got to be doing church right. And so they're designed not to be in conflict. They're designed to be an essential part of helping you and me to do right, to live right. And so they're not competitors. They're complementers. They're supposed to work in harmony. They're work hand in hand with each other. They are to help build one another up. And so we must keep this in mind. We must train the new babes in the Lord that church and family, they both get your attention. And there's going to be some struggles at times. There's going to have to, you're going to have to evaluate that. We've done that. We've, we've had that. We've taken this philosophy. And maybe we're nuts for doing it. But over the years, we've taken the philosophy that, and we've told people that some people who get going for the Lord, they want to teach, they want to do this, they want to do that, to the point that they are so busy that they could be hurting their family. And I'm glad they're busy for the Lord, but we've said to them at times, wait a minute, you need to slow down. Let's, let's just have you work in two ministries instead of ten. And it's not because we don't need the help. It's because who are we concerned about? Them, their family, okay? And so looking at it and saying, this is very, very important to keep this in mind. Ministering in the local church, it brings us back to that idea that in Hebrews chapter 10, we have the command, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's the command in this verse? It's the first words. You put it in, put it in your tongue, your language. Thou shalt not, what would you say? Okay, you shall not forsake the assembling. That's the command. What's the assumption by him commanding you? Don't, don't forsake the assembly. What's he assuming you're doing? That you're assembling. The assumption, he's telling you don't stop, which means you're doing it. 
Okay, so that's very, very important that we understand that the assembling of the believers, the, the forsaking, the stopping, so the assumption is we're doing it on a regular basis, that we're not supposed to stop doing this. And then he gives us the reasons. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approach. Looking at that phrase, what are reasons why we're supposed to keep on gathering? Yeah, yeah, you get that from what word? You, you get it from the whole concept. But the word exhorting one another, okay? That exhorting has the idea of helping, you know, come on, keep with it, go, go, go. And so the reasons given, we're not supposed to follow the bad examples of others. And he's giving it here, the manner of some, he's saying that some believers will forsake the assembly. Maybe they're so busy with a parachurch thing that they don't have time for church. He's saying, don't do that. Don't go there as the manner of some. Don't follow that example. Don't get caught up with that. We're to use the opportunity we gather to build each other up, which you guys do. You know, you encourage, you talk. Do you find, we haven't been able to do it during COVID era and only a little bit in these last few weeks and months. Did you miss the fellowship in the foyer? Yeah, right? What did that do for you? Oh, yeah, I, all we do is gossip. No, 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 no. What, what, that people contact and just sharing and even, even talking about your life and what you're, is that important? Yeah, it really, really is. It's so important. And so it becomes more critical when? In the latter days. Now, I understand the application of this like I've never done before. Living in America in 2020 strikes me as the latter days. And it seems like we're going to get beaten up more and more in the days ahead. That anything goes except for morality. Anything goes except for Bible. And we're going to, we're going to face that more and more in the days ahead. I, I, have, I have full expectation. We will be, Christians will be called a hate group within a few short years. And it's, we're going to get, and we will need one another's fellowship and encouragement. So he says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. How might we encourage others to love and serve the Lord? Hmm. I look at that. Okay. How do we do that? How do we provoke each other to good works? Hmm. It doesn't say how in the verse. It just says do it. So how do we encourage each other to good works? Any ideas? Go ahead. Isn't that a fabulous way of doing it? Engage somebody else to serve with you so they can learn how to serve. That they can get their, they can get their feet wet with you standing them by them and helping. Any other ways we can provoke to good works? Okay, yeah. I've got to work on that one. From, from the leadership point of view of saying, let's use people's gifts. Let's use them. Let's, let's not just you know, fill in the pews. Let's get people opportunities to serve. I put down some. Humbly share your example. Share how you did, how you grew, how, how you... Did any of you really blow it the first few times you tried to share the gospel? Or am I the only one? Okay. And so just telling, hey, this is what I did. First time I shared the gospel, I walked up to somebody, you're going to hell. Yeah. That doesn't go over real well. 
Okay, And so helping them out. Encourage them in their efforts that they are doing in serving the Lord. Pray for them and their service saying, I'm going to pray for you as you teach. Today you got nursery. I'm praying for you. Okay. And that's beneficial. Join them in the ministries. Invite them to join you. Thank them for their service. Is this critical to be thanked? Okay, we're doing it out of a servant's heart. But does it encourage you when somebody says, thanks a lot for teaching my kids? What do you feel like? Maybe it made a difference. So it's important that we do all those things. Here we talked about this verse, ad infinitum. In fact, it's in your book, but this has been our theme. So most of you know what's, what's this passage talk about. We're supposed to help perfect the saints. We're on page 115 if you haven't been following. To mature the saints, to prepare them for the work so that they can help build up the body of Christ, to train them, to facilitate. This has been our theme verse for conducting this whole ministry. You're familiar with it. And again, if I'm going too fast, you need the notes, you can contact me. I'll give you the copy of all this. Um, And then he talks in this section about how did this work in the New Testament? The same that you have heard of me among many witnesses commit to others. There was this chain, this domino effect. Um, Who ministered to Paul? Who discipled him? Barnabas. Paul gets discipled. Did Paul disciple anybody else? Barnabas taught Paul. Paul taught Timothy, Titus. Okay. Um, did they teach anybody? Timothy ends up pastoring. Remember what New Testament church he pastors? If, the one in Ephesus, right. There he did. And that church, those people reached out into another community located nearby. A church that begins with the letter C. Laodicea was nearby. Hierapolis. We've been preaching that series on Sunday morning. Any other clues? Okay. Okay, so you have that idea of this domino effect that you invest and somebody invests and here you have all these different people investing and it just kind of passed it on. In other words, you and I are to pass it on to somebody else and then that somebody else passes it on to somebody else and it's just a fabulous thought. And then I sit back and your notes ask, who invested in you? And I can't help but say, man, I'm so thankful for Pastor Kittle, Pastor Campbell, Pastor Odin's. Pastor Jordan, Pastor Dave, my brother, for their investment as pastors in my life. And, and some others in the church, like you know, Mr. Larson, he was an older man in the church. I thought he was ancient at that time. He was probably in his 60s. But uh, I was 17, and he was an old man. But he would give up and give testimonies, and I went calling with him. I learned so much from that dedicated saint of God, Mr. Larson. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to look him up and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Do you have people like that? A teacher, somebody that invested in you. And so the question in the notes to challenge you and me is who are you investing in? Very, very important. Then there's the last section. I'm not going to belabor this. But it's what do you know about spiritual gifts? You're doing a Bible study and you're going to talk to this person about spiritual gifts. Before we make any comments, what do you know about spiritual gifts? All Christians have how many? At least one. At least one. What else do you know? What's that? What did you say? They're for the benefit of the whole body, not just for the individual. Anything else you know about the gifts? I'm sorry, what? They get confused the most. Yeah, yeah. They, they get abused. They get confused. Absolutely. Anything else you know about the gifts? Who, who gives them to you? The Holy Spirit. Okay. Do only men get them? Okay. 
Are they all the same that we get? No. Okay. So you have all these things that come from God, every believer. There's a text. That, what verse do they give you in your notes? First Corinthians? Is, it, is that where we're headed for? for? What's it? Romans 12. Is that where the passage is? Okay. If you're turning there, because we're just going to highlight that in a moment, then I'm going to stop. Some, uh, by the way, gifts, some were miraculous, the healings, the tongues. Some were not. Some were basically, some were an office. A pastor is a gift. It's a position. Uh, a teacher is a position. The idea of some of the supernatural ones were predicted to end up. Great emphasis was upon that. I think that's probably that idea that you mentioned, Danielle. There was great emphasis put upon tongues more than anything else. And that, that was uh, undue, not proper. And so beyond the gift, the greatest of these is love. Okay. So in your passage, and that's where you mentioned, Lou, that idea of benefiting the whole body. This one, I guess I have it up here for you. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. What's that idea to profit with all? To profit the whole, to benefit the body. Okay. And so lessons that stand out, we've already mentioned them. God gives at least one. They're on loan from God. You didn't create it. Okay, um, these gifts vary from person to person. They are not for personal benefit or promotion. They're for the body of Christ. Then what he does in the book, he gives you a whole list of some of the gifts that they understand are present and functional today. And then he asks you to ask that individual. Okay, and by the way, these are passages where they are all listed, taking the entire multiple passages and comparing what's left. And so you ask them, okay, um, which gift is yours? Some of us, that's tough. I know I have this one gift. It happens to be a position that you voted me into. That I know. Um, do, do I have other gifts? I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes I might think I do, and sometimes I think I'm an idiot. Um, and we all feel that same way. And so you, you, the whole point is this. You're bringing this lesson to a close, and you're saying to that individual, you're saying to this most important thought, God's established church for the benefit of his children, including you. And I would highlight these two phrases at the very end. You need a local church and the flip side, the local church needs you, okay? And so that puts that whole study in context that gives that idea of local church. You know it all now. You can walk out of here and you can teach it to anybody without any questions. You are so smart. Those of you at home and following along, I want to thank you for doing that.